If you'd open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I heard something this morning, I'm not sure how to, uh, to take it, I guess I'm struggling with it. Tom told us that uh, on his Thursday morning Bible studies, he goes through Hebrews, that he's preached 12 sermons on the first four verses, and they're calling him Bob. As far as I know, they haven't been throwing rotten vegetables at him, so I guess it's still pretty good, but nonetheless, in contrast to that, we've been flying through uh, 2 Corinthians. Sometimes we cover an entire verse, uh, in only one Sunday, um, not three or four, um, and sometimes we've covered as many as six or seven, so um, I guess you can call me Tom. Anyway, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, as always, we are grateful. In fact, we, we, we just, it seems inadequate, Father, to, to say thank you, to say that we're grateful, to be grateful because of all that you've done for us. But we don't really have any other way to express it. And, and we really are. We appreciate so much all that you've done for us. We, we understand, Lord, that all of us are men and women who were condemned. And if you had not intervened in our lives, we will remain in that state with no hope and nothing we can do. And so, Father, most of us sit here this morning as people who have hope, who have a guarantee that this existence that we have now is not all there is, that there is much glory to follow this life. And we also are aware, Lord, that that doesn't render this life meaningless. It is filled with a great meaning, and our lives are filled with great joy and satisfaction because of all that you've given us and because not only that it comes from you, but because of your presence in our lives. Father, we know as well that as your children, though we've been made aware of our sin and that we were in desperate need to be saved from our sin, and we've been enlightened, we are aware, Lord, that though we have been saved, we still find ourselves giving in to sin, and we are in need of on the ongoing transformative work of your Spirit, and so, Father, we ask this morning as we read your word and as we contemplate those things that Paul has said, that it will be our desire that we'll have a great hunger, not just to understand your word, though we need to do that, but the Lord, that we would learn to evaluate our lives in light of the scripture, that we would desire our lives to mimic and to submit what is given to us in the scripture. Not only, Lord, that our lives would bring glory and honor to you, that is, though that is our, our highest calling, but also, Lord, knowing because you've told us that as we submit to your word, as we obey to what you've, to what you've said, as our lives are transformed and become more like Christ, the joy is ours. And, Father, we desire to experience this joy and even overflowing of joy. And so we ask now, Lord, that you would bless our time as we continue to work our way through this letter of Paul's. We do thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. 
And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not by the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. As we work our way through 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I have read through several commentaries, and many of them have pointed out that 2 Corinthians chapter 3 presents to most interpreters more difficulties than any other chapter in the Bible. And that it's just difficult to really be able to sit down and say, this is what he is saying and this is why. So we will try to go through, obviously, as we always do, carefully through what the Word of God says. But again, let me remind you that Paul has been described as belonging to a group of individuals that are just simply peddling the Word of God. He's been described as an individual who just wants to have power over people, uh, who maybe even wants to gain from them financially. Paul has stated that he has ministered from sincerity. Uh, the word that's used in the Greek language means to be sun-tested. The Lord's ministry through Paul was under attack by really false teachers, by false apostles who had come to Corinth. We could pause for just a moment and be reminded that... Um, if you desire to teach the Word of God, if you desire to uh, be committed to just what the Scripture says, to do your best to always be objective with the Word of God, uh, to not allow traditions to influence the way you understand Scripture, uh, to not allow the, I guess maybe public sentiment to interpret for you what the Word of God says, if you're willing to teach the Word of God, as the Scripture says, in season and out of season, uh, if you want your life and your ministry, because we're all to have ministries, to be word-centered, to be Christ-exalting, to even be spirit-filled, and to be glorifying to God in every way, uh, you're going to have trouble. People are going to be unhappy with you. Not only non-believers, even believers. Not all of them, but some will be uh, unhappy with you. In fact, if you just strive to live that way, you're going to ruffle feathers. You know, if you ask questions about how we understand Scripture, you're going to ruffle feathers. I believe that having our feathers ruffled sometimes are good. You know, we need to rethink things. I don't think traditions are necessarily bad. I do think they should be questioned from time to time to make sure it's centered in the Word of God, that we've not overlooked something, that kind of thing, to make sure that we are always sticking with the Word and not just with tradition. I was just last night answering a, a, a question for a young man who was texting me uh, because he was feeling guilty at times because when, he would, when he's at home and he's praying, which I, first of all, I just thought that was great that this young man is at home praying, uh, but he would open his eyes and he was just overwhelmed with guilt because his eyes were opened. And he couldn't find in the Bible where it said that you had to have your eyes closed. And so I told him, well, that's not in there. I said, so you're Okay. And the Bible sometimes refers to several individuals who actually lift their head up, it's not down, and they're looking into heaven, looking up in the sky, and their eyes are open. I said, there's many different postures for prayer. And so he said, well, then why do I feel like this? Tradition. 
And it's okay. You know, I think some of those things are, are, have been given to us for our good. But the bottom line is, is if you want to be word-centered, this is going to happen in your life. And, so, and it happened to Paul uh, immensely. And so we need to recognize that. The, I guess you say the MO of those who are, maybe they're not really saints. Maybe they're just pretending to be believers. Uh, I, I don't know if we could always say that dogmatically about those who may go against certain ministries, though sometimes it does seem that way. But their MO is pretty much the same. What did they do with Paul? Well, they told lies about Paul. They tried to discredit his character. They tried to discredit his competency as a minister. And really the main reason for that was because they wanted to usurp his authority. Whether it was just to undermine it so they would have maybe the ability to, to kind of maybe be in charge. Or maybe it was for that express purpose, but that's kind of what goes on. And Paul was, I think, feeling like he was in a, in a very difficult place. Because he, he was defending his ministry and what he was doing. And then there were those who were then twisting what he was saying and saying that he was just commending himself them. And that does happen sometimes. Individuals will commend themselves uh, in maybe a, in a wrong way. And so Paul was being accused of that. So if you, if you summarize chapter 3 of Corinthians, Paul is defending himself against the charge of self-recommendation. Uh, Paul has stated that his sufficiency comes from God. So Paul is trying to defend himself and he's doing so in the, in the humblest way that he can. Uh, that it was God that made him a minister of the covenant. But again, he's a minister of the covenant. I mean, that, that's, that's what God's called him to do. And so he's not ashamed of that. But again, he wants all, make sure that the glory and the credit is always pointing to Christ because that's what's most important. Those aren't just cliches or words that he uses. The group that's coming against him, at least in part, seem to be a group that we are familiar with. Uh, it's a group we often refer to as the Judaizers. Judaizers were those who would come along and say that maybe it was good that you had faith in Christ, but there was not enough. You know, you, you needed to, to basically full-on embrace the Jewish type of lifestyle. So if you're not circumcised, be circumcised, follow the law of Moses, uh, those types of things. These individuals who were doing this would brag because they would, they would carry with them basically letters of recommendation. The idea was, is you should listen to me, and then they'll hold up a a letter and say, see, because I can show you this. People make fun of me because I'm sure you can read that from where you are. That's my notes. It's pretty large font. But that's so I don't have to put my glasses on. So I don't have to do this, you know, up and down all morning. But anyway, the idea is they have these letters so that they can say, see, you should listen to me. You know, and that's, that kind of thing sometimes goes on today. People, people will maybe, you know, they, they want to, uh, it's not wrong to say that you have degrees. That's a great thing. But there's different ways, I guess, to express that. And some individuals will say, well, you should listen to me because I have a degree. Uh, or I have this or I have that. And you know, we should, what we should all understand is we go back to the scripture uh, to check what anybody's saying, whether they have a degree or not, to make sure that it's accurate. And they were pointing out that Paul didn't have the same kind of credentials they did. And so therefore, they were superior to Paul. They, they should be listened to and Paul should not be. So Paul is... is He's not really saying that he's been commending himself. He has been accused of only commending himself. I, I do think it's sad when a person measures his worth by what people say. I think it's natural for us to do that. You know, as we mature, hopefully we can mature out of that, but there are many individuals who still measure themselves or measure their worth by what people say. 
instead of what God really knows about them, and, and that's important for the believer. We should not be getting caught up in those kinds of things. But when you look at verse 2, many things which, give, which, which do give an individual status in the unbelieving world should not offer status or authority in the church. You know, we don't, we don't want to lift up an individual just because they are now Dr. So-and-so. Um, most of the individuals that I hang out with, uh, other pastors and individuals, when we talk about individuals that we respect, it's, really, it's got nothing to do with their degrees. It has to do with how they handle the Word of God. That's what, that's what evolves around. Because some of them may have PhDs, some of them may only have a master's, some may only have a bachelor's, or whatever it is. But normally what's going on is we're looking at the individual's life, we're looking at their ministry, we look at how they handle Scripture. And so those are the individuals we want to listen to, individuals that will make us think, individuals that do their homework, uh, individuals who we would, have, we would say have successful ministries, regardless of the number of people that are following them or not. The idea is how they handle the Word. And are, they, and are they living out the word? Is there that consistency? Is there that growth, that maturity, that kind of thing? And so we need to make sure that we don't fall into that ourselves, that we somehow think that so-and-so or whoever it, uh, should be listened to only because they have a degree, that they now have status. And, and the church has suffered from that in all kinds of ways. We've mentioned before how um, it, at one time in just the history of our, of our country, um, you go back, to, I guess, to the 1700s and maybe the 1800s. In a lot of towns, usually the best educated person in the town was the pastor. And so, along, so normally what would happen is that he would get a tremendous amount of respect from people in the town. They, they would come to ask him for, about all kinds of things. And then as you know, education became more affordable and, and whatnot, pretty soon he was, there were several individuals that had degrees that were smart, or at least viewed as being smart. And then as our culture became much more secular, the others were elevated maybe to a higher place, and so there's been kind of this loss uh, of this general respect that people had for, for those who were what we would call clergymen, which to me is normal, it's gonna happen, but there are those who've been trying to find ways to hold on to that or to the idea of that. And so there was a time, and maybe it's still going on, I don't know, um, but I know there was a time where there was, it seemed like a kind of a movement, or maybe a fad, I should say, where pastors were wanting to be introduced as the CEO of whatever their church was, because CEO kind of brought with it, uh, you know, that fancy word gravitas, um, and so it made them more important, made them feel more important. And so it's just sad when we get caught up in that thing, and we need to make sure that we, that we don't do that um, as individuals. The wisdom and the persuasive methods of these false teachers did impress some of the Corinthians. And so we need to, to look out for that today. There's a, a, a book that was written back in the 90s. Um, it's edited by Oz Guinness, and it's called No God But God, Breaking with the Idols of Our Age. It's a pretty good book. Uh, in there, there's a chapter written by David Wells. I, you may not be aware of this, uh, but many years ago, I think it was back in the uh, early 90s when this began to happen, um, in seminaries, they began to offer a, a doctorate of ministry degree. It's not a PhD, and it's not an MDiv. It's like another master's. That's how most individuals describe it. Uh, but a lot of, but there was a lot of push to get ministers to get this, because if you got that, then you could call yourself doctor. And then as doctor, I guess that would give you more prestige. I don't know. Um, but David Wells, who I, I like him a lot, he has a chapter talking about that. Um, it's pretty interesting, to say the least. 
So we're not immune from that kind of thing. And, and that's why we have to almost be stubborn to make sure that we recognize that what we know to be true is based on the authority of Scripture, period. What if there, was, what if there were no believers who had a Ph.D.? What if there were no believers who had any respect in the academic world? Would that make a difference? It shouldn't make a difference for us. It, it doesn't matter what the world thinks. The world's going to think what the world's going to think. And it's always going to you know, begin to move towards, I guess, maybe the negative, to diminish whatever is going on within the Christian world. And so, and so we, our confidence is in the Lord. And our confidence really, it can be in the Lord's people as they have proven their lives in living in light of the, of the Scripture, showing that, that their lives have been transformed by Christ and they're, they're people of the Word. And, and that's, that's where we gather. And so if the world wants to poke, make fun of us and say that, you know, we're a bunch of yahoos, and then fine. But just be, even if we are a yahoo, you can know the truth. And we've been given the truth. And so we need to make sure that we don't get caught up in that as the, this whole church got caught up in that. And as a result, there were some who were, it wasn't just that they were drifting away from Paul. I don't think Paul was concerned about that part. But what was happening is they were drifting away from the things that Paul was teaching. And it wasn't that Paul wanted the credit for that. He knew that what he was teaching was from Scripture. It was what God wanted to do. And he wanted them to, to hold on to those things, to cling to those things, because that would bring them spiritual success. That would bring them satisfaction and joy and maturity to the Lord. And that was his concern. And that's why this difficulty in the church was of such great concern to him. is because that's how it was affecting others. It was affecting their spiritual growth, their spiritual life, and their spiritual vitality. He even mentions here in this, uh, in verse 3, he says, And show you that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of, of human hearts. When he uses that phrase there at the end, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, most of them would understand he was referring to the law of Moses that God gave to Moses uh, on the stone. And even if the Israelites could read the law itself on the original two tablets, that experience in and of itself wouldn't do them any good. It doesn't make you more holy if you have that. Not at all. Because it wouldn't change their lives. The law is an external thing. People need an internal power if their lives would be transformed. And so Paul is pointing it out and talking about the ministry of grace. And that it's the ministry of grace that changes the heart. That the Spirit of God uses the Word of God and writes it on the heart. You see, the Corinthians at one time were very wicked sinners. When Paul came to them... He brought the ministry of the gospel of God's grace, and that completely changed your lives. Let me remind you what it says in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. He writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Well, Paul doesn't say, but such were some of you, but I came along. It's not what he says. He doesn't say you were all these things. Thank goodness you listened to me. He didn't say that. 
All he mentions to them is exactly what changed them. It's what Christ did for them. So Paul has been consistent. And so he's reminding these individuals in the second letter here about all of this. They experienced the grace of God. That should mean much more to them than the letters of commendation that these false teachers were carrying around with them. They should be kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, wait a minute now. And, and looking, I guess you would say, at their lives, if you want to say theologically or practically, there's a lot of terms you could use that actually would fit in this. But the idea was, is they were to look at the transformative power of Christ and the gospel. And it was Paul that did bring that to them. And when Paul brought that to them, he wasn't bringing himself. He wasn't commending himself. His concern was to communicate the message of Jesus. The lies of the saints at Corinth were so real and transparent that they could be easily read. Their lives were not written in difficult-to-understand language. It wasn't some, you know, Christianese kind of thing where they just used Christian jargon. But there were real lives that could be really read, really understood, and really believed. We've seen transformations. They experience transformations. There's individuals who understand that their lives are completely different now than they were before. We know what we were before. We know where we were headed. Sometimes we think about, where would I be if I had not come to know Christ? If I was not involved in Christianity? If I was not involved in the Word of God? If I did not have the Spirit of God living in me? What kind of person would I be? I don't know about you, but I, all I can think of is negative things about myself. I wouldn't be very nice. I would, I would be mean. I would continue to be just an arrogant person punk and a lot of other bad things you know i would have friends not a lot and this wouldn't be good and so the idea here is that he wants them to look at that because it's the gospel what the gospel does that's important here not really the messenger and when the emphasis is on the messenger there can be a problem and that's what's happening in this church really that's the test of ministry it's it's changed lives it's not press releases. It's not statistics. Even when ministries use statistics, I think statistics have their place. I still think we put way too much emphasis on that at times. It's changed lives. If you, let's say you teach Sunday school and you teach kids that are middle school age kids and through your life, if you teach them for 30 years, you can distinctly remember four of them who became believers. I hope you don't think that your life is a waste. Because it's not about if it's four or 40. That's not what it is. But you see that changed life. You will rejoice every time you see that young person. Sometimes it's even more pronounced if that individual is one who comes to our church whose family didn't come. And we know in a sense the odds were more against them. And we see how their lives are very different than maybe what they would have been. Because we can imagine what it would have been like. That's what it's about. It, it was a, a, when I was uh, serving as a chaplain for the Good News Jail and Prison Ministry, that was always a, there was always tension among all the chaplains in the organization when it came to numbers. It, no one was against the numbers, but there are those who really were uh, maybe, maybe a little nervous. Um, I'm sure there's some other adjectives that would be better that would describe uh, 
that they didn't, they, they want us to be very careful how we use numbers. We were asked, you know, how many individuals came to know Christ? How many individuals maybe recommitted their lives to Christ and those types of things? Uh, and, you know, it's, it happens maybe more than we want to admit in, in ministry, or at least in some ministry, especially, in, I would say, well, not maybe especially in parachurch, you know, organizations that, that are um, serving in specified fields. I, I think sometimes they want to use those numbers to justify what they do, and it is used to bring in more money at times. And so there's the, it's kind of like bragging. You know, well, in our ministry, you know, last year, 18,945 people came to know Christ. And it's always a good thing when people come to know Christ, whether it's 18,000 or 1,800 or 18. It, it is a good thing. It's good that we are aware of it. I think that's, that's great. It's, that's fantastic. At the same time, we, you know, we're, not, we're not selling used cars, and we're not going to get a bonus if we sell more used cars than someone else. And we have to be careful with that because it could become all of that. Remember what Jesus said one time to the Pharisees. You know, they, they, their, their whole thing was to get converts. I've talked to people who it's all about converts, and it's never about discipleship. What, what did Jesus say? Yeah, you cross the sea to get a convert, and you make them twice the son of hell that they were before. Oh, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty damning phraseology that is used by Christ. And so we want to see lives changed. I guarantee you that if, uh, if you have, if you're raising a child, let's say that your, your son or your daughter goes through a lot of difficulty and, and it's becoming apparent to you that they, they don't really know Christ and, and you want me to talk to them. And let's say that it, it works out, they want to talk. If my only concern is to get them just to, is to try to do whatever I can to get them to say yes, would you be happy with that? No, you wouldn't be happy with that. What you would be most concerned about is you would want there to be a genuine, transformative event, belief that your child experiences, where they, where they genuinely place their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you want to see. That's what you want. The last thing you care about is me being able to use them as an illustration one day about how they apparently became a Christian. You want their lives to be transformed because that is the evidence to us that that individual has placed their faith in Christ. We, I believe everyone who tells me they believe in Christ, but I also, we watch their lives. That's what we want to see. That's where the evidence is that that's happened. And that's, what, again, what Paul is concerned about. I think I've told you the story before of a man who, he, he was, another pastor called me, asked, a guy that was visiting him, who was a traveling evangelist, he could come into the jail and teach the men. I said, okay, I'll, I didn't know the guy, but I said, okay, I'll let him, I'll let him come in. He came in, and, and he taught my dorm. And in my dorm, if, if no one's in court, there's 56 men in this jail dormitory that, where I was discipling these men every day. And so he came in, and six of the guys were at court, so there's 50 men that are, that are sitting there as he preaches. And um, when he finished... He came over to my office. I had to escort him out, and so I had to finish some things. So he asked to borrow the phone, and he was calling, I guess, his secretary who was putting together a newsletter about his ministry. And so he said, um, you know, I need, I need you to go ahead and add, you know, we had 210 decisions for Christ today. I, I immediately stood and looked in my dorm. Because <laughs> I thought, where all these guys come from? It was the same 50 guys. 
210 decisions for Christ. And that phrase was used on purpose because it's very vague. Even though I know most people who read that term think one thing. Wow, 210 people came to know Christ. But that's not, that's not how some people in ministry use that term. He couldn't go anywhere because I had to escort him out. So when he finished, I asked him a question. I said, I got to ask you a question. I said, 210. I said, there's 50 guys over there. And he said, well, you know how it is, brother. I said, no, I don't. I don't. <laughs> he said, well, you know, I, I, asked, you know, I asked those who wanted to come to Christ and those who wanted to recommit their lives to Christ. And then, you know, we, we, you know how many of you men want, want to be good husbands? And how many of you men want to be good, good Christian fathers? And of course, he keeps counting all the hands. And, go, as they, and I, <laughs> I said, well, I said, if, if that's how we're going to do it, I said, I'm the greatest evangelist in Savannah. Because I can get them to raise their hands. I can get them all to raise their hands every day six times a day, and man, I am, I'm gold. And I said, but you and I both know that would be very dishonest. He was not happy at all. And I was the nicest guy. I waited a bit before I escorted him out. I was done, but I just thought I'd let him stew for a while. And then we, I was coming out. But that's the, that's, not everybody does that, but that kind of thing happens. And we have to be careful. We want to make sure that the Christianity that we present, both individually and collectively, is authentic. We don't have to make up numbers to justify anything. Because what we believe is the truth. Christ is real. Christ is the God of salvation. To all, you know, the gospel is, is, is what is believed to bring salvation to all men. It's, it's not us or anyone else. So we want the test of ministry to be the changed lives. And there's no room for bragging for anyone. So if you and I patiently minister by the Spirit of God, we just leave the results with the Lord. We don't have to worry about it. There was a, a British journalist. This is a famous story. His name was Henry Stanley. He was the guy who went to Africa to find a very famous missionary, missionary by the name of Dr. David Livingston. And so this greeting that he used when he found him is, is how most people remember the story uh, because he said to him, Dr. Livingston, I presume. And so most individuals are kind of familiar with the story. But the story goes on from there. And this is what this man wrote, Henry Stanley. This wrote he, what he wrote in his journal. After they had been together, he and Dr. Livingston had been together for a while, he wrote this. I went to Africa as, a pre as prejudiced as the biggest atheist in London. But there came for me a long time for reflection. Because I saw this solitary old man there in Africa. And I asked myself, how on earth does he stop here? Is he cracked? What's going on? What is it that inspires this old man to live here in Africa? For months after we met, I found myself wondering at this old man who was carrying out all that was ever said in the Bible. Where the Bible says, leave all things and follow me. And Dr. Livingston did this. So little by little, Dr. Livingston's sympathy for others became contagious. My sympathy was aroused. Seeing his piety, his gentleness, his zeal, his earnestness, and how he went about his business, I found myself converted to Christ. That, that's what we want to see 
as a result of our lives. That was what Paul was concerned about. Dr. Livingston would have, could have cared less if Henry Stanley went back home and said that Dr. Livingston was the greatest man he ever met. What he would have cared about was this. This man was converted to Christ. So I'll ask you a question. It's always good in, in a congregation setting to ask a question because it prevents us from being embarrassed because we're not going to have to answer out loud. Even though sometimes we can feel embarrassment on the inside. And this is one of those tough ones. So what would your friends or your acquaintances say is the gospel that is written by your life that you live before them? Are they even aware that you go to church? Are they aware of Christ in your life? I know that non-believers often don't care about those things. They're, they're not going to get all the details correct. But has there really been a conscious effort on our part to live as Christians? To bring attention to Christ? You don't have to be obnoxious. You don't have to do it in, a, in an obnoxious way. You know, we don't have to be weird about it. Maybe even more so with those individuals that we've known for years, where there's been lots of opportunities and interactions with that individual. If they were to be asked, in all seriousness, about the gospel that you believe in, what do they know about the gospel? What do they know about Christ? Even if they were to say, well, I, I don't know anything about the gospel, but I know this man to be kind and gentle, religious. You know, I, we don't want them to say good things about us that exclude Christ. They may not be able to pinpoint why we're the way we are in the sense of, oh yeah, because Christ has transformed their lives. So hopefully at some point we say that to them. But even in their own imperfect way, there should be some expression that they know that we are involved in church or that we're religious and that we take it seriously. Do they, do they know that we believe because of how we treat other people? Or, or maybe how we've handled certain situations? I think sometimes the negative situations that we have to encounter at work are gifts sent by God to give us an opportunity to be able to reveal to others what Christ means to us. So they can see the difference. So, so they can tell that maybe if our, even if our integrity is attacked, that we don't respond like an immature child. But then we have, we have a confidence that's not self-confidence, but a confidence in Christ. There's a quote from a, a, an old uh, professor of theology, James Denny. He says this, Amid all these details, let us take care not to lose the one great lesson of this passage. Christian people owe a testimony to Christ. His name has been pronounced over them. And all who look at them ought to see the nature of Christ. We should discern in the heart and the behavior of Christians, the handwriting, let us say the characters, not of avarice or suspicion, of envy, of lust or falsehood, of pride, but of Christ. It is to us, he, that's Christ, has committed himself. We are the certification to men of what he does for man. His character is in our care. The true epistle of Christ to the world are not those which are expounded in pulpits. They are not even the gospels in which Christ himself lives and moves before us. They are living men and women 
on the tables of whose hearts the spirit of the living God, ministered by a true evangelist, has engraved the likeness of Christ himself. It is not the written word on which Christianity ultimately depends. It is not the sacraments, nor the so-called necessary institutions. It is inward and spiritual, divine writing, which is the guarantee of all else. And to that, Paul then says in verses 5 and 6, and Paul being a, what we would call a great apostle says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves. If we were to say anybody was sufficient to be Paul, he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the law, or the letter, uh, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, and the Spirit gives life. When he says not, not that we are sufficient in ourselves, or even the word competent would be a good translation as well, it means that we're able. It means that we've been made sufficient. We've, we've been rendered to be competent or worthy. Uh, one, one theological dictionary says that we are now, in a sense, large enough to do this. The idea is that you and I, this is not where we sit down and we follow the ways of the world to write out our plan on how we're going to get others to recognize the gospel as we live our lives before them. We are made competent or sufficient by Christ. So Oswald Chambers, who's pretty good, sometimes he, I think he says some good things that have nothing to do with the verse he's talking about, but he's got some good things to say from time to time, and he makes you think, and he says this, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies. Why? Because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. There are times that God will choose and use those we will call somebodies. But he only uses them when they renounce dependence on their natural abilities and resources. And so this is the call, as Paul writes these things, this is a call for all of us to examine our life. And what you and I can never say is that, well, I'm no one. There's really, I can't really influence that many people or whatever terminology we want to use to try to find a way to, I guess, maybe even weasel out of this. And this is not dependent on your ability to be able to, to make this plan where you can divide your life up into so many segments throughout the next several weeks and months to be able to target certain people to make sure that, that you, know, you do or say certain things so they hear the gospel. And I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to think in those terms, but what we need to remember is this. We're not relying on our own cleverness. We're not relying on our ability or on our personality type or anything else. We rely on God in the same way that we relied on God to save us from our sins. And so you know the individuals that you, that you see every day or that you see on a regular basis. So you pray for them and ask God to open their eyes and to remove from your life any obstacle that may interfere with them hearing or seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And ask God to help you to recognize whatever opportunities will come your way. And that you will be given the wisdom to speak or not to speak or whatever the case may call for. And plead with the Lord that, that what they will become aware of is Christ. 
the transformative power of Christ. And remember that there's no excuses for any of us. We don't depend upon ourselves. It's almost as if it's a contest, not with other people, but how little of myself can be involved in this process so that all the light and glory shines on Christ. Sometimes it can be amazing in really a rather fun way as to how God will use the simplest things we do and say. There are many, 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 many people that famous Christians will never be able to touch with the gospel of Christ. And those are oftentimes individuals that you and I meet in our lives. And God has you in that person's life. And God desires that you be the one to declare the gospel of Christ. That's what it means to preach the gospel, to declare the gospel. And so I would challenge you to ask God to give you those opportunities and to recognize them and take advantage and sit back and be amazed at the things that God does because he's a marvelous, miracle-working God. He's done the same thing in our lives, and he'll do the same in theirs. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for really this incredibly humble man named Paul who though he was educated and gifted in many ways really thought so little of himself because he was burning with a zeal to express and communicate the gospel of Christ to everyone he met and he really didn't care about what they thought about him except if it interfered with those who needed Christ, hearing the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for his efforts to, in a sense, commend himself, but not really himself, but you. We thank you, Father, for how he handled this controversy and how he, he brought it back to you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us be able to imitate that same attitude. The Father, we would have the strength to really forget about ourselves. To not be concerned with what other people think about us. But Father, to be burning with the zeal that we're able to carefully and accurately communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ by our words, by our actions, by our thoughts, by those that we pray for. We ask, Lord, that you would not only grant us opportunities, but Lord, help us to see them. Father, I pray that when we see opportunities and we fail to take advantage, we ask, Lord, that in your kindness that there would be an overwhelming sense of guilt because we are living in disobedience to what you've said. At the same time, Lord, if we take advantage of opportunities you give us and we see that perhaps there is movement on the side of others towards you, we pray, Lord, you would keep us from any kind of arrogance or somehow thinking that we made that happen because it will be so obvious that we didn't. And help us, Father, to sit back in wonderment of your amazing gospel and the strength of your love. We thank you, Father, for how you've moved in our lives. We thank you, Father, for the people, really for most of us, I guess the nobodies, people that no one else will have heard of, that you used to bring us to Christ. And we thank you for them. And Father, we ask you to help us to be used in the lives of others. That we, Father, may experience that joy that is expressed in heaven over one lost sinner who comes to know Christ. 
Help us, Father, to realign our priorities to be in alignment with the scripture. Thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.